Welcome to Leadership Web, a podcast series from the University of Arkansas that exposes listeners to a wide range of perspectives on leadership. Through interviews with current leaders, Leadership Web strives to provide tools for you to either begin building your own or continue improving your existing leadership framework. We believe that there is no one single path to successful leadership, but that we can all learn from each other on our own leadership journeys. Today, we are joined by John Roberts, the Chief Executive Officer and President of J.B. Hunt Transport Services. The top five leadership priorities that have helped J.B. Hunt Transport Services the most are clarity of message and direction, solid objectives driven accountability for all, build, grow, and protect the team, listen to divergent opinions, and intentional disruption. Uh, John White with Andrew Ram, and we're here with John Roberts, the CEO of J.B. Hunt. There's no way when you started here you could envision that you are where you are now. I've thought back a lot on how I got here and what's kept me here, though, and the time really has gone by very fast, a lot faster than you would think three decades would take to pass. I don't feel 30 years older necessarily, yeah. and I did not see J.B. Hunt as my permanent place when yeah. I came here, and I found as I got into the work of what we do that uh, I never have really seriously thought about leaving. I, I didn't expect that I would necessarily end up running the company. Uh, every year that went by, I learned more about who we were and what we could do, and that just drew me into the reach and the span that we had. And I, I think that I, I think that we've done a good job of getting to some of those opportunities, and there are just so many more out there that uh, I'll be gone before we get anywhere near our full potential. Well, in fact, we ask you to share with us sort of the guiding principles that you have here, and you've indicated the very first one, clarity of message and direction. Yes. And as I thought about that, the word clarity jumped out at me, because that, to me, indicates you need to have vision. You need to be thinking long-term. It's not just what's next quarter, but where do you see the business going? Where do you see the company going? In fact, a friend of yours, uh, Chris Lofton, at one point said something to me about the leader needs to be able to see around corners. I'm curious about when did your mental picture of what J.B. Hunt could become, when did that begin to take shape with you? It started really crystallizing when I was running the segment known as Dedicated Contract Services, which I did for 13 years. Yeah. And, and those 13 years were very formative for me because in that business, we were really free to think about what we could be. There were, weren't a lot of boundaries because the industry was being defined and we were helping define it. Yeah. Really, the, the, the idea around clarity of message started for me when my team was asking me, what are we trying to do? What are we trying to accomplish? And I remember that question not being easy for me to answer initially. And I remember making a connection between the power that a good answer to that question could have on a team of people that wanted to go win. Yeah. A sports analogy, 
is the score of a game is essentially perfectly clear. Yeah. The, the sidelines and boundaries and rules are really perfectly clear, so we know what success looks like. We know when we're getting to where we're trying to go. And that's, that's why when we start off with the principles of, of what's helped us, we think a lot about where is it we're trying to go. And let's really make everybody in the organization understand at a very simple level. And for us, it's, it's been healthy growth. And that's a very macro type of approach, but we are a growth company because mm-hmm. we are in a growth industry that is so much bigger than we are. There's no reason not to take advantage mm-hmm. of that. And, and inside of that clear, simple message is a very healthy engine for an organization to attract people. From there, you start to try to move into a more specific way of thinking where will we grow? What will we grow in? Why would we grow in those categories? What are the rules and criteria? And I think defining some clarity around, for instance, in our case, it's centered on return on invested capital. So let's be really diligent about what we invest in and never stray from that principle. So I've gone from growth to capital discipline, and then we can start to unpack those specific messages by channel, by service, and really think about the questions of how big can this be? Who else competes in these markets? How much better are they? For instance, we have never pursued the parcel business. Yes. Because we know those guys are big and good and we don't have any business messing with them. But we are pursuing the final mile business currently Mm -hmm. because we don't see a lot of people there and so I think the clarity of message is just helpful for people who know where we're trying to go. We've got to get the vision right, and then we got to really stand behind it and make sure that we take care of it. That seems to also call on the need for persistence. Yes, indeed. And it also calls on the need for effective communication. Yes, I think that's very true. And yet, if you look across the entire organization, you can't get a message through to everyone the same way. So how has this affected the way you communicate now? I'll start with the leadership team. Mm-hmm. That's become the vehicle for me to build and define and refine that message clarity because that group of people who I work directly with, first of all, has to be very carefully selected. There's a lot of importance in surrounding yourself with the right people. And there's a lot of different ways to think about that, but I have put a lot of emphasis on the people that I have close to me, mm-hmm. mainly in that they have influence on my thinking mm-hmm. because of their own thinking and their mm-hmm. own ability. And I think that by helping shape the ideas, macro idea being we're a growth company, so that's not negotiable team, mm-hmm. how are we going to grow? And then that that team of people can talk to people. It's sort of an exponential quality of, I have eight people, and they go talk to eight people, mm-hmm. and that cascades in its own way, in its own language even, mm-hmm. in its own understanding, all the way out to the organization, so that as long as we align ourselves correctly, meaning the accountability systems mm-hmm. have to be very rigid, so that we don't confuse where those goalposts are. Yeah. 
And then we let that team help us communicate. And then we have big meetings and we have big presentations where we roll out the, the big picture and then each element gets to take its own shape and its own way into how they understand and, and communicate. There's a lot of give and take. I think that's another element that's important in communication is keeping our minds open to hearing what feedback we get when we roll out a message mm-hmm. and then does it not is it not well understood? Mm-hmm. And I think we can pick that up pretty easy and make adjustments. There are several things that you said there that really caught my attention. The clarity of message and direction. It's not John Roberts' message and direction, but rather it's our message and direction. So you build that within your team. That's right. right? Another thing that you said was that you talk to your eight people who talk to eight people. You didn't say text. You didn't say email. So with this generation of young people today, I think they need to understand the power of talking eye to eye with people. And that's the thing that I have seen you do so effectively. Well, it's still a people business and technology is only going to take us so far. I actually have a tendency to go throughout this whole campus and try to high five every employee in, in Lowell, which I started doing that. Uh, eight years ago, it didn't take me near as long as it takes me now, which is a great yeah. problem for me to have to deal yeah. with. And every year, I'm, I'm amazed at the response and reception I get to that. I simply walk up and down the aisles and just yeah. say thank you and high five people. And you see people look and you see the connection that happens that cannot be replaced with a text or a mm-hmm. message. I could write a I could film a great video or write a, a great email, but nothing's going to take the place of that, that personal connection. And we all believe in that. We all uh, know that we need to be in front of our people. Our DCS guys, which when I ran that business, we did this every year. We take about six weekends every year, and we would gather. We had to do it on the weekends because these are the people actually running the business for us in mm-hmm. the field. So we would bring them to hotels and we would fly the leadership teams of those segments in. We now combine our field people all the way across the company. And all of our segment leaders, all of our support team leaders go out and they meet for a day and a half in person, roll out that message, roll out that vision, listen and answer questions, have workshops, show new technologies. It's also a celebration. It's, it's the high five of the field because we all can't be everywhere, but we, there's no substitute. And I've seen the cost, mm-hmm. and it's not insignificant at all. Yeah. But we know what we're getting. We're getting to that very point you're talking yeah. about, and that is we're not just sending them a letter. We're getting out in front of them. Yeah. Your second priority was solid, objectives-driven, accountability for all. And you've mm-hmm. already mentioned yes. accountability and how important that is. That, that means then that you've established objectives, that in your case, I know that they're not just fuzzy objectives. They're measurable objectives. You're big on data, aren't you? I am. I am. And, and the reason I highlighted the term objectives in that priority is because I have learned both with our people and with our customers that the data won't lie to you. And that you might be on the wrong data, but the data won't lie to you, assuming we're getting the math yeah. right. And what we've learned how to do is if I set up objectives with people that I'm directly responsible for and they align those objectives in their ways to get to the data, to get to the results 
that they're trying to get to, that also cascades, just like we talked about, with I'm talking to eight people and they're talking to eight people. That data can line up perfectly. And so the guys in the field, the ladies that are in the field running an account or managing a board are managing a subset of that objective data that rolls right back into all the data that I manage. And so that alignment really, really solves for the question of what are the rules, where are the goalposts, where are the sidelines? And we just know that if we hold ourselves to that standard, that we won't be surprised. And I mentioned customers because one of the things we did several years ago when we were having some retention problems, to be a growth company, you have to hold on to the business that you get. In transportation that can be commoditized in cyclical times, you have to be really careful about losing business. And and we established a program we call CVD, Customer Value Delivery, that was based on the same principles that we managed internally by. So we ask our customers, what is success to you? Objectively, what is success? And every agreement that we have has a set of criteria that we measure monthly in the same way that we measure our own internal, primarily financial data. Mm -hmm. So we know before the customer knows when those trends are starting to present us with problems and in getting ahead of those problems, we show our customers we're paying more attention to the work we're doing for you than you are and we'll always be a step ahead of you. Our retention rate in Dedicated today is over 98% in cyclical times and not. Well, So I am fully convinced that that system works, but it goes back to the same concept of objective accountability. Yeah. Now, about accountability, when some people hear that term, they say, oh, gee, then you can never make a mistake. And that's not what you mean. Not at all. You have to be very receptive to the idea that most of the estimates we put out are probably wrong to start with. They are telling us where success is and reaching and exceeding those goals is is a real good thing. But also approaching those goals is a good thing. And deviating from those goals is trying to tell us something. We can't ignore any of those points. If we beat every goal we put out there, we're shooting too low. If we miss every goal we put out there, we're shooting too high. Right? And then let's remember that everything we know that we're doing right now probably came as a result of some prior mistake. So let's don't be afraid of that either. It's culturally the most difficult thing that I've tried to manage is in the embracing of the mistake. Because... They aren't that popular, no. and I think human nature is to want to not embrace and acknowledge mistakes. But I think that we've, we've made some progress there, and I think that we've got to know that you're going to, it's accountability 101, and there are going to be misses, and we've got to know how to handle them. Yep. And the third priority was build, grow, and protect the team, and it's team-based. It's all about the team. And I know underlying that, as I've watched you over the years, you are a servant leader. You're really all about the team. And one of the ways that you communicated that to me is a big part of your team is your family. You mentioned about DCS, and I remember when you were appointed to be the head of DCS. Yes. And that was a very, very important moment in your life, yes. certainly in your career. I wonder if you just share with Andrew here 
yeah. about that. He's not heard this. Well, the, the observation you make is is brilliant in that the team is not just about the people that I work with here. Yeah. After that story, which I'll tell, I, I started to really understand that the people I was working with had their team, and we needed to help build a culture that supported that whole team, that whole family system and family network, so that when you came to work, you were ready to work because you didn't have issues back here. The, the story uh, of 1997, I was called on vacation in Gulf Shores, Alabama, to take over this division that was at the time about $150 million, effectively a startup. And I was in my early 30s with a fairly new wife and two really young kids. And they called me actually from this office and said, the company plane's on its way to get you. We'd like you to take over DCS. And I said, well, I, I can't take this job until I talk to my wife. And it was a second nature reaction. I didn't really like think I should go get an award or be, be the good guy. I just thought I'm going to need her with me. I better go ask her about this because that'll, that'll be an important family decision. I went and found her and she was at the amusement park with the kiddies and we took the kids back to the grandparents and sat down and we made a decision together about what this was going to mean because as I explained to her, this is going to probably be a little turbulent. This isn't going to be like they're just going to hand me a new set of keys to a new office and it's not going to be anything to it. I'm going to probably have to work pretty hard and we need to do this together. First of all, we decided that we would do this and I don't think that she and I ever had a fight about work. I know that we had tough days and we had challenges and, and, and that, but there was never this idea that I had made a decision for the family without consulting her. And that's really when I learned, John, that the power of that healthy home can really influence your work. And it's really a, a much more complete picture of how to run a team. And I started to challenge our group as I got into that job and had more people I was responsible for, whether or not they were attending uh, kids' sporting events, whether or not they were attending the, the dance recitals, whether or not they were coaching sporting events. And I had several people that were curious about, what do you, what do you, what's this about? I, I thought I was, you know, this sort of pre-programmed, I'm, I need to just work all the time. And I, my realization and the reality was, You'll do a lot better job for us if you give me eight good hours and you're, you're home for dinner and you're at baseball and you're not walking into a house where your kids are frustrated. But it really goes even deeper. I think that that, that is the, the idea of just really putting things in order in your life in a job of leadership. For me, that's been faith and family come mm -hmm. before my work. Yeah. And I've held on to that very tightly. Some days this job is not as much fun as others. Sure. But when you've got the foundation that I have, that I stand on these days, and for all of my time, really, it, it's a lot easier. Well, I was impressed. Uh, a couple of things that you've shared with me over the years. Uh, you went home and your wife had tried to reach you yeah. by phone. Yeah. And couldn't reach you. I had a different assistant than... than yes. <laughs> she called and she couldn't get through. My assistant had told her that I was busy and she was very upset about that mm -hmm. and we actually same thing we deployed a rule I've shared with many young executives if your wife calls take her call yeah and what you'll find is she'll ask you if you she'll figure it out but she needs to be able to get to you yeah and when she can get to you that's all she really sometimes she just needs to know she can get to you mm -hmm. 
and that you're not that busy. You're not so busy that she's not a priority. When you say priority, we have to know what that means, I think. Faith is a priority, then I think he needs to fall back into my faith regularly. Yeah. If, if my family's a priority, then if my wife calls and needs me, I need to stop what I'm doing and go talk to mm-hmm. her. If I'm not doing that, I really can't claim her as a priority. Yeah, exactly. For some of my younger up-and-comers, I've reminded them early, coach your kids, be at the dance recital, mm-hmm. be home for dinner, mm-hmm. and make sure you take your wife's phone call. Yeah, I remember one night you were with us speaking to my class, and you said, you may think I'm staying past 7 o'clock, but my son's playing baseball over at Fayetteville High School, and I'm going to be there. So, was And there. you were there. You really did. <laughs> I was, yeah. yeah there, there's a, another thing that you did that I thought was really very insightful, and that was you had your assistant get with your wife to schedule your kids' important events, and you treated it just like a business commitment. Absolutely. You know, you are my role model with respect to how you've handled that, John. You've done it very, very well. Oh, thank you. It, it just pays back because you're giving people that are very important to you something that you, they really need, and that's your time and attention. And yeah. the best way to do this is have her block my calendar because you won't get a meeting on my calendar, if I've already, if I've got to leave at four o'clock, go to a baseball game. Yeah, exactly. You know, you can't see me after that. Yeah. You got to find another time. <laughs> so, build, grow, and protect the team. As you build your team, what are the things you look for when you're thinking of hiring someone or even promoting someone? What are the values that you look for in that individual? Well, first character. I've only hired someone from the outside of the consequence once. That's our mm-hmm. CIO, Stuart. And I don't have the luxury of knowing him as long as I have many of the other people mm-hmm. that I've, I've worked with. But I'm first looking for the person. Can I see in that person a complete value system mm-hmm. that I can trust, yep. that I can rely on? Mm-hmm. And we'll work out other things around that after we get that figured out. But that's the most important thing to me. And then I'm looking for the experiences matter and past successes matter and, and none of you're not going to get in that conversation without those things yeah but I'm looking for people that can challenge me in an effective way based on those successes and those experiences mm-hmm. based on an understanding of that clear message of where we're trying to go mm-hmm. and based on the ability to take risk mm-hmm. to take personal risk yeah. to be able to fail to be mm-hmm. able to be wrong, mm-hmm. to not always come in so low that they're always safe. That that if you if you hit every goal you ever set for yourself, guess what? You're not trying hard enough. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm that build the team is really important. I remember once I was approached about leaving this company to go run another company. It late in the game in my DCS time. And it was intriguing because I didn't know exactly what was happening here and I'd been doing that job for pretty long time and it's kind of a interesting company and as I started to think about that I wondered what well, where will I be going I won't know any of those people mm-hmm. I won't know who I can trust I won't know who can help me win that game or who can be relied on in that situation when I really need a go-to mm-hmm. and I need to reach in and, and say look you know recently we had a situation in Chicago and I asked Nick Hobbs and Craig Harper I said I need you guys to go to Chicago it wasn't a second thought to it. 
those guys got on planes. They went. I mean, I know, I knew exactly what would happen because I know those guys. And I dismissed the idea of leaving because I knew I'd have to take everybody from here. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. This is not a single person event. I mean, you've got to have people around you that that can win with you and lose with you. We've lost some games around here, but we go in the locker room and we talk it out and we shower up and we head back on the practice field and we start working on it for the next round. Well, you may have lost some games, but you've won a lot of Super Bowls. Too. We've won a few Super Bowls. You really have. Yeah, that's uh, Now, the next one that you gave to me was listen to divergent opinions. There are several things about that that really jumped out at me. One is about the power of listening. Have you become a better listener? Very much so. Yeah. I found, uh, particularly when I got out of the DCS job running a segment, into the CEO job, running the company, that there was another level of leadership required there. And because I had been a division president, I know what it feels like to be a division president and know more about the business I'm running than my CEO did, far more, in fact. And there's some history that I had growing up in DCS where I had to become very directive because mm-hmm. we got ourselves in some trouble and taught me a lot, helped me do what I do today. But those were different times and called for different leadership. Yeah. And I and I had to unlearn a little bit of that when we get to this idea yeah. of listening. But I found pretty early, just drawing on that experience I had from being a division president, that I needed to hear these folks because they knew more than the layer that I was in prior to that. Mm-hmm. They were division presidents. They were executives operating another another altitude. And I remember this idea very early. I had a great idea over a weekend and made up my mind about something I wanted to do that was pretty comprehensive. And I brought it in. I meet on Monday mornings with my people I'm directly responsible for. It's called the ELT, Executive mm-hmm. Leadership Team. We meet in Mr. Hunt's old office. Mm-hmm. I, that's the only standing yeah. meeting in that room. And uh, I, we present very strategic discussion in that meeting uh, every Monday morning. And I presented this idea. I make a list on the weekend, and I go down my list, and they can tell me what's on their minds. And in this case, I had decided this is what we were going to do. I don't, I don't necessarily remember what it was, but I remember the reaction I got was not what I expected. And I had sort of, I remember this fork in the road hmm. in my mind. It was yeah. like, well, I think this is a pretty good idea, but I'm not feeling a lot of support here. And I know I need to be listening to these people, but I know I'm right. Yeah, yeah. And I remember in that case, I did listen. And I changed my mind about mm-hmm. it. And it really taught me a lot about the power of that because we all kind of know the drill. Get everybody to buy and then it's everybody's idea. Yeah, yeah. That's a little bit cliche. But it's also pretty real. Mm -hmm. And not only in that sense, but I think that was the moment that that team of people knew that I was listening to them. And that they had a lot of influence if they were thoughtful Mm -hmm. and if they were still operating under the the big plans, but that I could hear them. And Mm -hmm. so that has led us to a lot more deeper thinking and discussion. And frankly, there have been times when I've said, I, I am going to take the left road. I am right about this. Yeah. This is what we're going to do. Yeah. And I've been right about it, and I've been wrong about it. Yeah. But it's, I don't. I still reserve the right. I, I listen to diversion sure. opinion. Yeah. I don't yeah. necessarily yeah. entirely 
have to be influenced by it. But if yeah. you do find more than not that it's very helpful. Yeah. Well, in fact, that's that's the thing that uh, it was about the listening, because after the listening comes the deciding. Yes, we haven't we got to that yet? But let's let's also pick up on divergent opinions, particularly divergent, because to me, watching you and what's happened with this company, that brings the whole subject of diversity into play here. And what a change has occurred in this company sure. just uh, just in the time that you've been the CEO, John. Yeah. I'm thinking particularly about the, the role of women, yeah. the role of technology. Yes. I mean, it, it's, it is a different place now than it was. Yeah, wonderfully different. Yeah. Wonderfully, it's different. amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, we we I think we finally figured out how to embrace the idea of diversity as an advantage. Yeah, it's it's no longer a distraction. It's about harnessing the power of different thinking and different experiences and different backgrounds and different cultures to mm-hmm. go towards this common goal of serving our customer. Mm-hmm. I mean. We talk about the big macro clarity of message. The only reason we're here is to serve our customer. That's the only reason JBCon exists today. Mm-hmm. And if we can get everybody here pulled on that road with the idea that we're then going to grow and take really good care of our invested capital. Mm-hmm. And that's all supported by taking good care of each other. That's a real mm-hmm. cultural power that we have that I think we got from our founders and, yeah. and management that's come before us is here we believe it's okay to take care of each other. We don't think there's anything wrong with being friends. Yeah. We don't think there's anything wrong with liking the people you work with and helping them when they need it. Mm-hmm. We don't think that that's against the rules. And when you start to introduce diversity to a culture like that that knows where it's trying to go and knows it wants to grow, it's a very powerful thing. Yeah. Well, and the, the last word of that, listen to divergent opinions, they're opinions. They're not necessarily... Facts, they're not, you know, they're not cast in concrete. And so then you have to get to the point of deciding. Yes. Have you seen a change in the way you go about making decisions now about how much of it is based on intuition, gut feel uh, versus hard data? Have you seen that change at all? I've seen a, a, maybe an expansion of the inputs mm-hmm. because I think we are getting to a place where history is not necessarily as good a predictor of the future as it used to be. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to be really careful not to ignore that. Yeah. And so while I'm still very data-driven and can really look objectively at a problem, I'm going to also want to be influenced by the opinions yeah. Especially, again, go back to that build the team and take good care of it. That's a really rich body of thinking at that table. Those are really successful people. They know what they're talking about, and they have instincts and insights and inputs. So if we take all the facts and data, and then we take all of that that influence and, and spend some time there, appreciate the risk, appreciate the ownership, because mm-hmm. when we when we start to make decisions, we got to make sure we have that ownership quality. We go back up to accountability. Who's gonna Who's gonna leave here with the with the ball? Yeah, I think it's it's getting a little bit broader, and we are 
trying to pay attention to the speed of change and the and the influencers of change and how they they need to be considered. Yeah. If we were to say not recognize a trend like an intermodal, we've seen a lot of congestion on railroads. That's a data point. There's a lot of capital support for expansion there, but I'm trying to put those two ideas together. This is a very mature business model. Mm-hmm. Is it trying to tell me something? And I just don't want to hear it because I don't like what it's trying to tell me. Yeah. And that's not really a fact, but it's it's a part of the input that we have. Well, another aspect of the opinions you just touched on, actually, is that not everyone's opinion is equally right. weighted. That's right. Mm-hmm. Right. So you listen, but you listen on some subjects far more carefully to some people than to other people. But I suspect that there's no end of people who are willing to share opinions with you. They, they, there is no end to it. But I can say this on that idea. There's a wonderful mutual respect that has developed in this team where people know when it's time to really invest and they know when it's time that somebody else might, needs to make that investment. Yeah. And it's not a predisposed idea necessarily. They just know each other. Yeah. We did our first analyst day before I was CEO in uh, Chicago. I think it was around 2009. We had just done the Norfolk Southern contract, and uh, Kirk really wanted to do that. We'd never done it before. It was very well received. But the night before investor day, we had a dinner together. The executive mm-hmm. team had a dinner yeah. together. And there were some things brewing that I was aware of. And so I was paying attention to different elements of how the company was working, how the chemistry was working. And I came away from that night thinking, that's something that needs to happen more regularly. Those people need to be together for dinner more than once every 10 years. Because if we can create a little bit of community around that table, mutual respect, and there's a lot of data sharing that goes on offline. Mm -hmm. And, and a lot of pre-work that gets done by the time they get to sit down with me, they're they're prepared. They've kind of figured out where they all stand and where they can support. That also helps me with how much intake I, I mm-hmm. apply because yeah. I know they're they're down the road a little bit here and they feel this is important, so mm-hmm. they're okay. But I left that dinner and I said, we're going to do that. We're going to do that a lot more than yeah. just now and then. And we yeah. have, and it's it's been very, very healthy. It's great. Well, I think that also, you've shared uh, with me that how quickly you make a decision has changed over time. Yeah. That there was maybe a point in your career where it was ready, fire, aim, yeah. and now it's not just ready, aim, fire, but it's ready, aim, and re-aim, and then fire. Yeah. There may have been a time where it was fire, <laughs> <laughs> ready, <laughs> aim. Even, weren't even ready. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had to grow into it. Yeah. yeah well, I think what I've learned, and in, in, in the decisions are different maybe also, so that yeah. might be a qualifier, but these these things we're addressing now, they need time, and I've learned that time will let me know when we've put all the, the data in and, and had all the conversations, and I'll stop, I'll stop having questions, yeah. and so it's okay, especially on important matters, don't, you don't have to be, I mean, there are decisions we need to make quickly and, and we try sure. to do that. But if we're, if we're thinking deeply about something, it's okay to let it, we call it marinate. Let it mm-hmm. marinate for a little while. Yeah. And if it's, if it stops, you know, revealing itself, then we're getting closer. Yeah. And that's okay. I don't yeah. mind that. Your fifth leadership priority is intentional disruption. Mm-hmm. 
And, and that's one that you're the first to bring that to my attention over the years about the power of disruption mm-hmm. and particularly intentional. <laughs> In that, it seems to me as an element of tension. You know, some of our students may think that the, the perfect company is one where there is no tension. <laughs> but if they're engineering students, they know if there is no tension, There's, a body comes to rest. Exactly. <laughs> and you can't afford to have the company come to rest. That's exactly right. Uh, so talk a little bit about this intentional disruption, if you would, and how you have brought that to the company and how it's become a part of the fabric of the company. Well, it didn't present itself uh, right away. Mm-hmm. When, when I took the job, the company was so well put together and, and we had uh, extraordinary models that were running under extraordinary leadership. And I kind of found a way to push some throttles forward and go a little faster. And we did that for three or four years. I mean, we just really were at a good time where I didn't notice that need until we started to hear a little bit of, of rattling in our trucking business. Then mm-hmm. here we heard a little bit of rattling in the dedicated model. And it presented the question, what's happening around us with evolving models, any company? And I found, I found a couple of books that I want to recommend. One is called Lead and Disrupt, and one is called The Innovator Dilemma. Well, I, I wanted to make a reference point here because these, these are wonderful materials. And as I started to hear a, a little bit of this rattling, I thought back on what, what we stand for. And when Mr. Hunt and Mike Haverty shook hands on the back of the train, they took yeah. all the highway traffic and put it behind locomotives. Wonderfully disruptive. Yeah. Who would have thought that mm-hmm. made any sense? Mm-hmm. And at the time, a lot of people didn't think it made any sense. And then if you just take that on out and you look at starting companies like uh, our brokerage business that can, in a way, cannibalize freight out of our trucking business mm-hmm. and give it to other carriers, and yet it's a healthy step in the right direction. What we learned here was that companies that get to a place where they're happy with their model find their business coming to rest. Exactly what you said. Yeah. It's exactly the way to think about it. Like Sears. Sears. Blockbuster. Circuit City Blockbuster. Uh, yeah. And we studied those companies. Mm-hmm. And what what these books talk. So you see my books are nicely marked here. I, yeah. I gave a copy of these books to every member of my team. And I said, I want you to read both those books. I had read them. And I said, I want you to read both those books and we're going on a retreat. Mm-hmm. This was about three or four years ago. So I'm about four years in, three or four years in. Things have been going nicely. But you know you know it can't stay. Nothing stays. Nothing stays. You just can't. And you know that we've been successful at disrupting ourselves. Maybe not intentionally. Yeah. But we know we can do it, and we survive it, and we thrive in it. So we went off, and what, they, what these books taught us was if you run your business and your new ideas under the same premises that you run your legacy business, it will not work. You cannot hold yourself to the same standards. And by the way, this was all during a time when our competition was changing mm-hmm. to people like Uber mm-hmm. and Convoy and Forkites. Mm-hmm. So they're not the same guys we're used to fighting on. The, it's different teams now. Yeah. And they got different 
play sets, and we knew we had to go address it. So we went off site for a couple of days after having read these books, and we and we figured out that we're going to have to be intentional about this. Yeah. We're going to have to embrace it. We're going to have to look for rule sets that help us guide. These are great guides. I mean, these points in here, they, they're highlighted because they said something to me about how I'm going to apply one of these principles to today's paradigm. Yes. And the, but the key, the key was getting the team to buy into it because they are so programmed by that objective yes. accountability that I sure. built out, which is, mm-hmm. it's a gyroscope. And you got to really think about how everything affects everything else. But it, the, the key is um, you can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. And you're either going to be a disruptor or you're going to be disruptive. We've covered the five things that uh, you shared with me, and you've done it really very well. But there are a few other things that I'd like to sure. bring up. Sure. It, it, one is there's uh, Margaret Thatcher at one point said, being in power is like being a lady. If you have to tell people you are, you aren't. <laughs> and it reminded me. Yeah. Uh, you know exactly what it reminded me. I do. I do. And I wonder if you would mind sharing that, because I think that's a powerful learning that you had at a intermediate point in your career. It was pretty early on when I took over DCS and I inherited a group of people that I knew fairly well. My background in that channel was I was one of their sales guys and I had sold some really big deals. And in selling those big deals, I had come alongside a lot of those operations people to help them bring those new contracts up. And I got to know them and and I really thought I had a lot of respect from them. But all of a sudden, I'm the president. I mean, I've gone from being the sales guy to all of these folks are now working on my team and need to take my direction. And we weren't we weren't gelling very well. There were multiple opinions about what we needed to be doing, and I didn't have any credibility at that time. So, you know, I was kind of going off the best advice I could get from mentors, et cetera. And at one meeting in Dallas, Texas, in fact, it was Arlington. I can still see the room I was in in a point of incredible frustration, I said, I am the president of this division and you will do what I tell you to do. And I mean, it was certainly one of, but the lowest points in my, all of my leadership career. Yeah. Because it was admitted failure in every way you can think of it. Yeah. I don't remember a lot of what happened next just because I just thought, oh my Lord, I can't believe that just happened. I yeah. can't believe it had to come to that. And I don't really even remember how I recovered other than I never forgot that experience. And I knew that if I ever tried to do that again, that was the end. That was yeah. the end of, of any leadership hope for me. Yeah. And, you know, it's just that point where if you have to say it, yeah. you aren't. Yeah, exactly. And it just it takes, it takes credibility that you earn. And you don't earn it by saying it, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. There's another... Thing. In fact, uh, President Reagan said it to Gorbachev. Uh, he said it in Russian. It went something like this, Dovorye no provorye, which means trust but verify. You do a lot of delegating, but you can't just delegate and leave it alone and not follow up. Right. The trust but verify. Right. And you have, you have developed that ability 
over the years. High level of trust. Yes. But still, there are occasions where you go from the 40,000 foot level yes, and you dive deeply into the weeds. Yes, sir. Um, Sometimes and, without a lot of notice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really blessed that I can see most of what's going on in a few data points in any part of our business. I just know what the triggers are. And I can watch those triggers on a daily or weekly or monthly basis and, and anticipate whether I think something bad is starting to happen. I don't need to worry about it if it's not. And I don't need to worry about it if I've heard, if it is and I've heard the plan to correct it. And, and I can give those folks enough time to, to work it out. But it's very, very helpful for me to go deep on certain aspects of the company. First of all, if they're in trouble, Mm-hmm. because I'm analytical so I can help mm-hmm. unpack and ask questions I can do math really fast mm-hmm. you wouldn't know it from looking at my transcript necessarily yeah. but I really am good at math yeah. and it, it helps challenge the way they're thinking that's one thing that, that I find is revealing They, you know, people have a tendency to go with what flow that they know they, they stay in how they analyze they see it this way and I might come in this way and cause a little disruption mm-hmm in that flow helps me stay accurate and current on what, how I'm looking at the business. Mm-hmm. But it is a trust and verify system. Mm-hmm. First of all, if you, if you don't have the trust, you've got the wrong people. Yeah. And that trust is not to say, I never need to know another thing about what you're doing here. I'll trust you to take care of it. It's that I'll give you the time you need. Yeah. And if you need my help, let me know. And then on a regular occasion, I'll, I'll dive in and, get down in there deep enough to I feel like I've stirred the water up enough and get people talking about what I want them to talk about and then I'll get back out of their way. Well, in fact, I think that uh, this experience you shared, which uh, Margaret Thatcher's quote reminded me of and you of immediately, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is a big reason you keep something on your desk to remind you about the difference in being a leader and being a boss. Indeed. It says a boss creates fear, a leader, confidence. A boss fixes blame, a leader corrects mistakes. A boss knows all, a leader asks questions. A boss makes work drudgery, a leader makes it interesting. A boss is interested in themselves, a leader is interested in the group. And I don't know where I found that and I don't know who wrote it I, I intentionally put author unknown when I built this, this yeah. plaque but I think as you and I have talked many mm-hmm. times this, this sort of separates the idea of manager and leader Yeah, and if we can kind of remind ourselves of that periodically which is why I keep it right mm-hmm. in the middle of my desk yeah. I don't read it every day but I can know that it's there every yeah. day well, it's obviously, it, it has shaped you. I think it shaped your leadership. Uh, I, I had the, the privilege of being on the J.B. Hunt board for all those years and have watched the company grow and develop. And as a shareholder, thank you for the leadership you're providing to our company, John Roberts. Thank you. Thank you for joining Leadership Web today. We hope that you found insight and guidance on leadership tools from this interview. Please join Leadership Web in two weeks as we explore another leader's leadership journey. 
Also, follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn by searching Leadership Web.